You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Um, Before we dive into our actual passage today, um, it was brought to my attention um, that last week during uh, my sermon, and I went back and looked at my notes, so apparently it was during a time where I was trying to make um, just abundantly clear the difference between outside the camp and inside the camp, that I, that I made the statement that um, all sacrifices were made outside the camp. And um, and it's clear, you know, the, the person that, that came to me, it was Marty, he was the first person that saw me, um, and he was like, Joe, look at this, you know, and I made a mistake in saying that. And I looked back at my notes and I, I was like, okay, so I think it was during a, a time where I was trying to just kind of differentiate what's happening outside the camp and inside the camp and what they um, believe that meant for them and what God taught that meant for them. And I I just want to be upfront and, you know, honest that I did make that mistake and um, to, you know, own it and say that I made that mistake in stating that. We can clearly see that there was sacrifices made in the camp and and different things like that. Um, So I just wanted to be upfront and, and say that first. Um, just so that um, if you heard it, you know, kind of like Marty did, and was like, wait a minute here, and let me just look, and and innocent enough that uh, I made a blunder like that. But um, also, the second thing, the reason why I want to do that is to let you know that first and foremost that I am a member of this church, and um, that any of you that are members, or even if you're just a a God-fearing person that is, is... um, attending this this um, church and, and maybe seeking membership at some point in time, you can come and say, "Hey, um, the Bible says this, Joe. You know, can you can you either help me with that and that?" But I just want to note that the door is is open like that, and that um, again, I, I am certainly not perfect. Just ask my wife or anybody that truly knows me. Um, but I just wanted to, to make sure that I, I made that correction to start with uh, before we dive in today, and um, so. That's out there. So if that hit you, like when I said that, if you're like, wait a minute, you know, Leviticus says this and there's different places that say that, you are correct. And I was in error in saying that that all sacrifices were made outside the camp. That is clearly not what is in the Bible. So saying that, we are going to continue our time in Luke. And as Nate has kind of framed it a good bit, we're going to be looking at the calling of Levi and then these Pharisees that come along and they start having issues with some of the things that uh, Jesus is doing. And we will see throughout the rest of Luke that these Pharisees, and you know very much that they have a lot of problems with what Jesus does. So let me read our passage for today. We are going to be in Luke 5. We're going to go 27 to 39, which is the rest of the chapter. And I want to read this and pray, and then we'll dive into what the Lord has for us today. So Luke 5, 27 says this, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. 
And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. We thank you for the honestness of those that you charge to write scripture through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that there are many things we find in our, in our Bible that if we are writing a tale or a story that we just wouldn't put in there. But because this is historical accounts, Lord, they're in there for us to chew on and look at. And Father, I just pray today as we see Levi's calling, as we see the challenge from the Pharisees, Lord, Lord, that we would just honestly evaluate where we're at. Have we been truly called by Jesus? Are we looking for the new wine that he offers? Or are we still trying to patch him in to our form of religion or our way to be saved? Father, I pray that you will help our hearts today. Show us that. Or we know because of our fallen nature, as Sam prayed, one day it'll all be gone, that, that in many ways we do, we do try to fit Jesus into our religion. But Lord, he's come and he, and he tells the Pharisees and he tells those that are there, it is completely new. We are thankful for that because it is all of grace. Lord, help us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I remember when my brother, he went to WVU Med School, graduated, and um, there was some uh, discussion, I mean, not really with our family, but between um, his wife and him, like, because they really wanted him to serve out in uh, Morgantown, but they decided to come back, and, and he was preparing to take over a practice that the gentleman was retiring, and during that time, he was on call. He was working for the hospital, because a lot of times the hospital will help you with um, you know, to get you to come to rural areas. They'll help out a little bit with student loans and things. So he was, he was working at the hospital. And we know that, that many doctors, when, when they're working, and, and maybe you are in a field or you do a job where you carry around, I mean, we don't carry around beepers anymore. Back then he had a little beeper, but we have our phones now. And, um, and he would be on call. So there'd be certain weekends where he's on call at the hospital. And, and, and oftentimes that's when I got to spend time with him was to go out and on on the golf course, and but we it was always with the warning. And oh, by the way, this was the good thing that he was on call because then he would always pay. That way, if he felt bad because we had to leave um, anyway, but that was always you know just 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 saying that uh, that he would do that. That he knows that he is on call that he would have to leave if they call him. Now, many times, you know, the, the buzzer would go off and, and um, you know, we did have the, the flip phone back then. So he would call in and, uh, and sometimes he would be able to fix it. 
Um, you know, he would be able to prescribe something or do something right there. But sometimes he'd, you know, he'd hang up the phone. He's like, okay, Joe, we got to go in. So we would go in and, and he would take care of what he has to do, right? So we know that if you're on call and maybe you have a job that you're like that, that you're on call certain times of the week or certain times of the day, that you know that your life can be interrupted at any time, at any moment. Your schedule can change and you know that going into that. But what we see here at the beginning of our passage is Jesus calling Levi. Jesus changes the schedule of Levi's day. He not only changes the schedule of his day, he changes the schedule of his entire life. We see this in verse 27 and 28. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Now remember, after this, think about all that we talked about last week. He healed a leper and then, he, you know, he... he um, healed a paralytic where they broke out the roof and dropped him down in and, and he forgave sins. And then so after this, he goes out and he sees uh, walking around the town and he sees this uh, tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. See, this is what the calling of God does on our lives. It changes everything. It doesn't only just change your schedule for that day, but it completely changes our whole life, just like we see here with Levi. Now, who is this Levi? As Nate alluded to, we know him better as Matthew because he wrote one of the Gospels. But we know all we need to know in just two words about this man called Levi that Luke is introducing us to. He was a tax collector. This was a despised position. A fellow Jew who sold themselves out to the Roman government. The Romans would hire people to collect Roman taxes and the tax collector would add his fee over and above the tax with absolutely no regulation from the Roman government or anybody else. Right? There's, there's no market. There's no um, competitiveness, there's nothing. It's just, okay, I'm charged to, to collect taxes. I have the whole Roman government behind me, and I can charge whatever I want to charge above and beyond what that I need to pay them. So they were not liked people within the community, right? They were not liked at all. Bottom line here is Levi was simply a, a thieving sinner. He was cheating and, and thieving from his actually fellow Jewish brothers and sisters in the ethnic sense. This would make them unclean, much like the leper from the last week's message. They are sinning. They are, they are taking extra from the Jewish people. Many rabbis said that if a tax collector sets foot in someone's house, everything and everyone inside became impure. Kind of like that same idea of outside the camp, inside the camp, being defiled and not being defiled. He's saying if the defiled person, a tax collector, one who is sinning through um, cheating his fellow Jewish brother or sister, that if they came into your house, then that whole house became impure. So when people saw him sitting at his booth, counting his money, they truly, truly despised this man. Levi actually is a reminder of the sin that dwells in us. Because until we are called by Christ, we are like him in many ways. 
until Christ calls us and he changes our heart and we are born again. We are like him in many ways. We sit in the toll booth of sin trying to get as much as we can for ourselves. That is our tendency is to be selfish and self-centered. That is who we are by nature because of the fall, because of Adam's sin. And not really caring too much what we have to do to other people in order to get what we want. And you're like, oh, no, Joe, I, I was a good person and Jesus just made me a little bit better. Well, then you truly have not seen your sin. You truly have not seen your sin. Jesus said none of us are good. None of us are good. We are all made in his image. Yes, we can do good things. Absolutely, we can. But as far as the connection or the relationship with God, there's nothing good that we can do to bridge that gap that our sin created. And the one thing that changes our plans and our schedule is that call of Jesus. This call changed Levi so much What did he do? He went from collecting money to spending money. He was a a greedy person who was charging his brothers and sisters, the the Jewish faith, that they would collect so much money, and now he wants to spend some money. From stealing from people to serving people. This is what the call of Jesus does in our lives. It changes our heart because we become new, as Corinthians says. We are a new creature in Christ. We see Levi changing not only his day schedule. He walks away from the tax booth, but then you also see his heart changing where he wants to tell others and celebrate with others what Christ has done. Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, him being Jesus. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. See, here's how you know that you're called. When you start to find, willingly or not, a sense growing on you that Jesus has to be the most important thing. That he has to be the most important thing. I, I so wish that I, can, I could stand up here today and say when, when you're called of Christ, whenever the effectual calling comes out and he changes your heart, that there's some you know, switch that flips and we go from, from not struggling to, you know, fully sanctified and glorified, but that's just not how God works. It's a progress. But it's that progress of wanting Jesus to be the most important thing. You know, and, and sometimes it seems like that, that we trudge for a long time and we only gain an inch at a time and we're striving and sometimes we get frustrated with that, but we always know that God's always working, right? As Philippians says, that we might be striving for our sanctification, but it's God that is working underneath of us. I mean, there's some times where we rejoice and we celebrate because it seems like God picks us, makes us from here and he moves us to here on that sanctification path and things fall off and sometimes... In that calling, he does that for people. I'm sure some of you have probably heard the testimony of maybe someone that struggled with addiction or this, that, and the other, where they heard the gospel, and then when God called them, all of that changed, that desire changed. Praise the Lord that he does that. Some of us are on a slower path. Sometimes the path gets accelerated, and sometimes we feel like we're stuck in the mud because he's trying to show us something. He's trying to teach us something. That the most important thing is the relationship. He has to be 
ultimate. He has to be the most important thing. And we start taking everything and making them the backseat things of our life. Everything else then comes second. And that is a progression. It progressively happens. It's, it's when you begin to feel like that, that the pager has going off, you've been called by Christ. What Levi instantly did is leave old loyalties for new loyalties. And that's at the essence, at the heart of what's happening. He's leaving the loyalties of collecting taxes and, and the loyalty of making himself rich to the loyalty of what Christ has called him to do, be, think, and live. Notice as soon as Levi changed loyalties, he also changed what he worshipped. Right? Sitting in that tax, tax booth and having all the authority of the Roman government, knowing that, that if you guys were those that I'm, t I'm collecting taxes from, there is nothing you can do about what I charge you for tax. And he was worshiping how much money and how rich that, that he could come, he could get by doing so. But his worship changed that day when he was called. His worship changed from, from himself and, and being ripped to witnessing, to telling others what Jesus did. He wanted his friends to know Jesus. So he throws a feast. And who else is going to be friends with a tax collector other than other tax collectors and those that are, as we were thinking about it last week, those that would be considered outside the camp, those that, that did things that were against the law, against Jewish customs, Jewish rule, those things that will be thought of as sin. Who else is going to be friends with a man like Levi other than other tax collectors? So enter into our story. Levi is called. He's, his schedule's changed. His life's changed. He's, he's, he's bringing his friends in. He's going to spend some of the money that he actually took from everybody to, to make this feast. And who enters our story? It's, it's the party poopers of the New Testament. They're called the Pharisees, right? Every time there's joy and every time there's fun to be had and every time there's rejoicing to be had, the Pharisees seem to come in and, and they start questioning and they start asking questions. Sometimes they're even accusing. Sometimes they're even just trying to figure out, you know, they knew the law. They, they had a lot of the mem law memorized, but many times they would add on to the law. They would add on things to what God has said in order to make one right before God. But they're always kind of like the Debbie Downers of the party, right? They're always asking these questions, always challenging Jesus. So they enter into our story here in verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It's like, why do you eat with them? I mean, so in their head, think of that clean and unclean idea. You shouldn't be in there eating with them. It's going to make you unclean, Right? There's no way that there's a teacher because by this time, you know, whether or not he's declared it or, but they've kind of put that title on him as teacher or rabbi, right? That he's one that is out teaching. And every time that he opened it, like, people would flock to what he had to say because it, it had so much authority. We know that because he is God in flesh. That's where the authority comes from. 
But something that, that God brought to my attention this week is, you know, uh, sometimes I can relate with the Pharisees where I'm often judgmental and, and quick to judge and, and different things like that. But it, what it was brought to mind and brought to my attention this week is it seems like when, also an, another way to look at the Pharisees, a lot of times when they appear in the Bible, again, although they are usually complaining, they actually are there to help us clarify who Jesus is. They're there to, to show us who Jesus truly is and actually show him, show us his message of grace and his work. The Pharisees, through their criticism, help us to know who Jesus is. It gives Jesus an opportunity to teach, <laughs> to teach the difference between the new life that he brings and the old life of following the law, which we cannot do. So what was their complaint in this in this passage, Jesus, you are eating and drinking with the wrong crowd. That's their fundamental first complaint, is you are eating with the wrong crowd, tax collectors and sinners. Why was this a big deal? Because the meal has a, a spiritual component. For the Jewish people, it has a, a very spiritual component. And I think for us, the fellowship over broken bread, not so much the communion table, but as we gather together for meals... It does have a sort of a spiritual component in the sense that sometimes as we're, you know, we're, we're just gathered around the meal, we let our, our guard down and we talk and we share. We're not trying to present the person we want everyone to like, but we're just eating a meal and, and being honest. But for definitely for, the, for the, the Jewish people, it was a, a spiritual component to this. Um, when you invite someone to a meal, you're inviting them into your life. Sharing the meal is sharing your life. And again, in Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. You're doing this before God. According to the Pharisees, these tax collectors and sinners were not eligible for this kind of fellowship. So that's why they were so upset. Why are you eating with them? Because that meal had a little bit more importance that maybe than we think about whenever we say, hey, you want to catch lunch after church, right? And a little bit more um, meaning to them. So the Pharisees were complaining to each with such people, as I mentioned before, to eat with such people as considered unclean. It was to share in their sin, so to speak. It's like, you know, guilt by association. Don't we still struggle with the same idea today? I mean, I know that in my early Christian walk, it was so much of, it wasn't that you were made right before God because of what Christ did on the cross and because of his grace that he lavishes on us, but you were, might, you were made right before God by all the things that you didn't do, you know? And that's, that's a pharisaical way of, of looking at your salvation. It's, it's not the things that we've done. This is what the Pharisees are saying. It's like, you can't do that. It's like, okay. But what really makes me right before God? It's not the things that I don't do. It's who I trust in. It's the object of my faith. He's the one that, that makes me right. He's the one that allows me to be in the presence of a holy God. But in many ways, sometimes we struggle with this today. We, we kind of stumble at this sometimes. Sometimes we cannot give grace to the addict or the person who has made us 
made a string of bad decisions is because we have never truly looked at our own sin in light of a holy God. Like we, we feel uncomfortable with people that don't look like us, talk like us, think like us. Oh, should I dare even go there? Vote like us? No, we gotta, you know, well, can't associate with that. That'll make me unclean. Well, no, it does not make you unclean. Because the only thing that makes you clean is the finished work of Christ. What we are doing again is confusing what makes us right before God. We justify by looking to the left or right, that's how we're justifying ourselves, instead of looking up at His holiness and looking in at just how sinful we really are. See, the Pharisees made keeping the law of the Old Testament, and many, they piled on top of the law that God gave, the basis of their righteousness. So they looked to the left and to the right, and they determined who was worthy. You're not doing everything that the law says or that we've added to the law, so therefore, you're not holy. You're a sinner. You're not doing it all. You're not completing it all. See, Jesus comes to bring a new heart, a life of trusting in his perfect life for the basis of your righteousness. See, for every one of us, the law still has to be completely fulfilled in order us to go to heaven because Jesus fulfilled it for us. So if we put our trust in him, if we trust in his finished work, we fulfill the law like he said, I fulfilled the law and that way we could be before God. But just like Abraham, just like everyone in the Old Testament that was saved, it was all done through faith. Faith in Christ, not by keeping the law. It was done through faith, just like we are called to do. To believe by faith. He didn't come for the person who is, has no need for a Savior. Those who think they are good, those who think they got this, how did Jesus respond to the Pharisees in verse 31? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Just like we saw with the leper, Jesus is not coming, becoming unclean because of the sin of those he is eating with. You cannot defile me. My holiness will overcome your sin, Jesus is saying. Jesus was restoring them to righteousness. This is exactly what he left heaven to come do. He did not come to spend time with those who think they have it all together. He came to save the people who really needed him, those with messy lives, as we often say around here. Those with messy lives. And the wonderful thing about Christ and, and our salvation is the more that we understand just how saved we are and just how much we need to let go of all the things we're trying to do to earn our way to heaven, the more freely we are able to stand before our brothers and sisters or sit before our brothers and sisters and share with them just how messy your life truly is. And see, then the, the gospel actually gets applied to your life. And then you actually get free from working your way to heaven Little by little, as we apply the gospel, you get freedom, you get joy. 
That's sanctification. And that's what Christ does. He gives us the freedom. You can stand before someone and say, I struggle with this, but I am in Christ. So this does not define who I am. Jesus defines who I am. So you're allowed to, to tell others that, that trust in Christ. Now, always with the warning, make sure you know who you're sharing with. But it gives us that freedom. And in no other place are you going to have that freedom. The one thing that binds us together, the one thing that unites us as Christians is that we are all in Christ. We are all in the same boat. We are all sitting around as sinners eating a meal together in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where we all are. And we're all saved by the same way. So we can share our messy lives. We can share our struggles. Because our struggles do not define us. What Jesus says about us defines us. You are a child of God. You cannot break the love he has for you. He deeply loves and cares for you. Again, this is what Jesus came to do. It's what a doctor does. A doctor spends time with sick people. I mean, what if our doctors, think about it, what if our doctors, you know, we just went through COVID and everything. What if, what if all the medical people was like, I'm not going in there. They have COVID, but they didn't. They went in. Because that's what doctors do. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to save us because we are in need of a Savior. And he calls us to a new life. In the words of one scholar, he says this, over against the Pharisaic idea of salvation by segregation, Jesus sets up the new principle of salvation by association. By association. When Jesus calls a sinner to new life, he makes them clean by the power of his perfect holiness. He calls sinner to repentance. His call requires us to change our loyalties. This is what repentance is turning from one loyalty to another, mainly from our own loyalties to loyalty to Jesus, our Savior. Turning from our rebellion and submitting to God. And then stepping into the call of all Christians, and that is to become the doctor. Isn't that amazing? This is, this is God's plan. I'm not sure I would design a plan like this, but this is his plan. That now we get to become the doctors. No, we are not the ones to save people, but we carry the message that saves people. See, through the message, the call goes out and the Holy Spirit changes hearts. And that's what he's called us to be, agents of reconciliation. This is what, if you want to know your purpose in life, you are an agent of reconciliation if you are in Christ. That is your purpose. No matter if you're a lawyer, a doctor, or if you're a waitress, or if you work at Sheets, or whatever you do in life, that is your job. That is your purpose. You're an agent of reconciliation because you have been saved, and now you have a message to carry to others as an ambassador of Christ. We are now called to invite sinners and tax collectors into our life so that we can introduce them to the great physician. Oh no, the Pharisees were not done. <laughs> they were not done with Jesus. They, they had some more criticizing to do. First, they criticized Jesus for eating with sinners. Now they're going to criticize him for eating at all. So they, they were just upset with him. Verse 33. 
And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. How dare you eat and drink? What are you doing? Jesus, your disciples are doing way too much celebrating. That's their complaint. They're doing way too much celebrating. What helps us to understand the complaint of the Pharisees is they were aesthetics. In other words, they practiced severe discipline. Self-discipline was their way to build their relationship with God. As abstaining from certain pleasures for spiritual reasons. They fasted and they prayed. Now you're like, well, wait a minute. You probably often say we need to be praying often from, yes, we need to be praying. I'm not sure if we've ever truly called for a, a time of fasting, but we also should fast. And we'll get to, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but you got to understand why Jesus was upset with them because their motives were off. Their motives were wrong. And their motives wasn't to glorify God. Their motives was to look left and right. Their motives were misplaced. John's disciples, why did John's disciples fast? They fasted in preparation for the coming Christ, where the Pharisees fasted to show how religious they were. Jesus talks about this. Not in our passage, but in Matthew 6.16, he says, And when you fast, this is the warning against them, and when you fast, or actually teaching about fasting, and when you fast, you do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they dis disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So as he's teaching about this, he's actually, you know, referring to the Pharisees here that they're saying that they are doing this, they make their face look weird, so they get input from people to the left and the right of them. And what Jesus is saying, you've already received your word, praise of man, right? Praise of man. So Jesus did not make his disciples fast. Why? Why didn't he make his disciples to fast? Listen to his reasoning. I'll let him answer that. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So this is not a time to fast is what he's saying. The bridegroom is with them. Here Jesus picks up on a marriage thread that comes all the way through the Bible. The Bible begins with a marriage covenant and the Bible ends with a marriage covenant. It's a beautiful picture that is all through the Bible. We are the bride, the church, and he is the bridegroom. He is the lover of our souls and our destiny is to be, destiny is to be united with him forever. Jesus makes the comparison here because a wedding is a time of celebration. It's a time of celebration. In first century, the, the wedding feast would last all week long. And they would, they would really celebrate all week long. Nobody fasts at a wedding. This is what Jesus is saying. The bridegroom has come. The kingdom of God has arrived. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you would RSVP to this wedding invitation? This is kind of trying to make the point of what Jesus is trying to say here. Please join us for the union, and I just made up names, Billy, Bob, and Sarah. There will be no food, no drink. We are fasting. Please join us in a spirit of contrition and brokenness as a new son-in-law enters our family. <laughs> we are not responding to that wedding invitation. And the absurdity of that is what Jesus is pointing out. The bridegroom is with you. Jesus is here. This is not the time to fast. This is the time to celebrate. 
This is the, the picture that Jesus is painting in this contrast. Because he is with them. Because the bridegroom is with them. They should do nothing that takes away their joy. Salvation has come. And it's time for feasting. Not a time for fasting. The kingdom of God is here. As Jesus would often say during his ministry. The kingdom of God is here. But there's, there will be a time of fasting not out of exhibition of their piety. In other words, not out of exhibition of how religious they are so that everybody looks at them. Boom, but it's a time of fasting out of grief. Jesus continues, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Jesus was referring specifically to his death. The words here in, in the Greek for taken away, it indicates an act of violence. This was the first hint Jesus gave that he would suffer a violent removal by death. It meant that his disciples would not feast forever. The time would come for them to fast. Maybe you are asking the same question I asked all week long. What are we supposed to be doing now? What does this mean for us? What time is it for us? A time to feast or a time of fasting or famine? Well, it's a time for both. Like the disciples, we are with Jesus, not by his physical presence, but by the ministry of his spirit. He dwells in us. He is with us. So we should be celebrating and, and feasting because of that. John 14, 18 says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Meaning the Holy Spirit will come. And we read about that in Pentecost. Therefore, we are called to feast with him at his holy table, sharing the fellowship of his body and blood which we do every week. But this is also a time for fasting. Fasting as a discipline to draw closer to God. As a discipline to help fight sin. But brothers and sisters, the day is coming when we will sit down together at the, what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. The eternal feast that God has planned for us to celebrate with Jesus. But that day has not yet come. So until then, we, we feast and we fast. We are still waiting for our bridegroom, and until he returns, we fast and pray for the fullness of his kingdom to come. We have a hunger for joy that will not be fully satisfied until Jesus comes again. In saying all this, Jesus was telling the Pharisees that they were in a new situation. The new covenant is coming. Now they had come to save sinners. It was a time for feasting. To drive this home, Jesus tells them a couple parables. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. He uses two parables to make one point. Some people will say that's two parables in a proverb. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about that. I think it's just two parables. Um, and he uses this to describe the nature of his overall ministry and to summarize what he has been saying. A new patch on an old garment and a new wine into old wineskins. His point in both of these parables is that he is not simply an add-on to the religion of the day. 
He's bringing something new. If you take a, a new patch and put it on old clothes, it doesn't work. It doesn't match, as the Bible says. And eventually something is not going to stretch enough and it'll break away. Same way with wine, as it ferments, it expands. If you put that in old wineskin, it will just leak out. See, what he's saying to the Pharisees as the parable, the old Mosaic regulations have to give way to Christ. Jesus is what the writer of Hebrews says. Jesus is the substance. He is the substance which the shadows promise. Shadows being everything foretold in the Old Testament that points us to Christ. Jesus needed to say this because he knew that people like the Pharisees would fail to understand his mission. Some would try to take little pieces of Jesus and patch him into their old way of doing things. We often do that. We take a little bit of this part of Jesus, a little bit of that part of Jesus. I don't like that part. I'm going to leave that away on the side. But the gospel will not mix and match. It will not mix and match. The kingdom of God is here. The bridegroom has come. The Messiah is in our midst. Jesus died for our sins once for all. He rose from the dead once for all. The Spirit was sent into the world as the real presence of Jesus among us. The kingdom is the reigning power of Christ in the world, subduing hearts to the king and creating a people who believe him and serve him. The spirit of the bridegroom is gathering and purifying a bride for Christ. This is the new wine. And the old wineskins cannot handle it. He came to bring a new covenant, a new way of life, to pour out his spirit into our hearts. You would think everyone would want this new wine, joy, freedom, forgiveness, a new creation. You would think everyone wanted Jesus, but not some. Meeting the Pharisees and the scribes prefer their old ways. They prefer, prefer the old wine. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, in verse 39, for he says the old is good. Now don't get tripped up here. When talking about actual wine, we know that the older is better and far more expensive. This is a metaphor. This is a parable. The Pharisees are positive they prefer the old. But Jesus comes and brings the new wine, and the new wine is, is better just like the Master of Feasts said when Jesus turned water into wine. Remember that? In John 2.10, and he said to them, everyone serves the good wine first which would be, in our thinking of wine, the older wine that has had time to age and is better. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, right? So that's the idea, is, is, is they would bring out the old wine, the good wine, and then when people get a little, you know, a little tipsy, they bring out the cheap stuff, right? But what does he say? But you have kept the good wine until now, the new wine. You have kept the, good, the new wine until now, the good wine until now. Unfortunately, many people today prefer the moralistic religion of the Pharisees. Be good, do good, try harder. Maybe we can merit eternal life. Or, or some people are even into the aesthetics religion, self-denial, salvation by segregation, hoping to earn God's favor. 
Jesus has come to bring new wine. He has come to bring freedom, full forgiveness, a new creation. He calls us to leave everything, to leave our old loyalties, to repent and follow him. And that is not safe, because he might call you to go somewhere to proclaim the gospel. It might not even be safe because you have to actually share your messy life with someone. But that is the new wine. He's not calling us to keep religion in a building for an hour or two. He's calling us to the wholehearted devotion to him. So we have this option in front of us today. We can experience the grace and transformation that Levi experienced, or we can stay stuck in the old dead religion. Jesus has come to give you something new. Praise God that a life of following Jesus is a life of joy. It's a life of hope. It's a life of real forgiveness. He is our bridegroom. We are his bride. And one day we will see our Christ, and fasting will end, and the ultimate feasting will begin. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Has Jesus called you and given you the invitation. I pray that he has. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you call people, that your effectual calls out with the word of the gospel that that is not our good works that makes us acceptable in your sight, but Lord, it is the free gift of grace and all that Christ has done that is credited to us. It's imputed to us. It's given to us. What a wonderful and loving gift you have given us. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in the sound of my voice that that does not know you, Lord, I pray that you would change their hearts today. Lord, for those of us who have been following you that are in Christ, Lord, may we examine our hearts. Where do our loyalties truly lie? Where do we need work? Where do we need you through your spirit to work in us, to change things? And Lord, are we celebrating our call? Are we worshiping as a wedding feast that's about to happen one day? Lord, I pray that we are. Help us to do so. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.